0: Welcome to Bible study here at St. Paul's. My name is Lawton Thompson. I'm one of the pastors here. We're gonna go ahead and get started. We're gonna open with prayer and dive right in. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you are the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the provider of all that we need. We thank you this morning for gathering us into this place, for providing us with this place, uh, for providing your word, and also today for providing us with the rain that is much needed to water your earth so that it can grow and spring forth life from it. We ask that you guide our conversation this morning, open our hearts and minds to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, last week we were in Luke chapter 19, and we're still in Luke chapter 19 today, but we're going to maybe get to the end of that. And so... I wanted to to take a chance to just remind us we we finished out with Jesus saying I tell you if these were silent the very stones would cry out that was kind of the last thing we talked about and that's at the end of his triumphal entry and he makes this statement pointing uh, to stones crying out And we talked about how potentially those stones could either be seen as all creation groaning or Uh, as Gentiles, because in those days, uh, to the Jewish people, the Gentiles didn't really even have the value of stones. They were outside of God's chosen people. And that's kind of where we left it. And so Jesus has now come into the city, although Luke doesn't explicitly say he came into the city. Remember, he says, drew near, drew near. And then we once again find him drawing near, And he says, this is starting in verse 41 of chapter 19, and when he drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation." So he's coming into the city, and he kind of surveys Jerusalem, and he weeps over Jerusalem. I think this is a fascinating statement. Like, as as I read through the Gospel accounts, I stop here, and really take stock of him weeping, his mourn, his lament, his sorrow over Jerusalem and over the people that are there Uh, because much of the people there have rejected him, have rejected the gospel. He knows what's in their hearts. And so he has some language here as he talks about this that kind of foreshadows what's coming. In 70 AD, The temple is going to be quite literally pushed off a cliff. It's not going to be there anymore. There is real destruction coming. And so he weeps over it, but I want you to keep that emotion in mind. Because he weeps over it, and then immediately from here, so this is drawing near to the city, he weeps over Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple. That's the very next thing he does. And it says, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And so I think it's fascinating that weeping is what leads into cleansing. His lament is what leads to this. And the reason that I point that out is because oftentimes I've heard this, uh, this temple cleansing, because we see this account in the other Gospels as justification for our own righteous anger. Where's my table flipping Jesus? And then we say... I can have righteous anger." Um, you can't have righteous anger. Only God can have righteous anger. Um, there's an excellent article written uh, by Dr. Jeff Gibbs from the seminary on the myth of righteous anger, and he takes a look at anger in the Old Testament, both divine and human, anger in the New Testament, divine and human, and what God's Word actually says, this whole council of Scripture, about anger. And, comes to the conclusion that anger itself is not sin, but the line of sinning and anger is so closely associated that even in Jesus' own words, we don't really find a differentiation there. Uh, and so here, I want, I want to highlight that for you, that we can't use this, this instant, this event in Jesus' ministry is evidence for us getting angry and feeling good about our Christian anger. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, he's God. He can be angry and act without sin. Uh, Now, I think it's also interesting if you look at any one of the gospel accounts, it doesn't actually say he was angry. It says he wept, he entered the temple, and he cleansed it. Uh, And so, this is a very interesting uh, progression here. that doesn't specifically point to him acting in anger there. Now, I'm sure that he was frustrated and he was not happy with what was going on there. But again, he's God, he's perfect. He can do that in the absence of sinning. And so he goes in there and he cleanses this temple. He gets rid of all of these, these people there that are money changers, they're selling things. One of the things that we know that was going on there is, if you look at the structure of the temple, there's, there's levels, right? Court of the Gentiles, there's the holy place, the most holy place, there's these different areas. And, and depending on who you are, you can only go to certain parts of the temple. Well, they were taking advantage of people there. These money changers, these lenders, these people that were selling sacrifices were, were actually not doing so in good faith. They were taking advantage of others. And so that's why he calls this a den of robbers. And so he cleanses this out and he says, this is not what God's house is about. This is not what my house is about. And he cleanses it. And then, very next verse right here. And he was teaching daily in the temple. So he didn't go there and cleanse it and keep moving on down the road. He actually stayed there and began teaching in this place, which is pretty profound because if you think about the other religious leaders of the day that are there, this is where they have been. And in that culture, like that, the amount of respect that you had for the rabbi in your midst was tremendous. And so for someone else to step in and say, this is not how it's supposed to be, and stay there and teach, that's going to elicit a very strong response from the others. And we we see that here, as it says, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him but didn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. It's a a pretty significant statement for him to just stop, pause, and teach and say, this is yeah i'm I'm coming here don't do it this way this is what's going on and they are angry they are angry about it for sure and i want to pause there for a second for any comments i even have a microphone today for comments here you go just make sure you hold it like right here
1: (laughs) i was just uh i was just uh for that, when Jesus talks about you, did not know the time of your visitation. Mm. That word visitation uh, kind of is a sense of inspection and oversight by God. Yeah. And uh, it, it just kind of indicates they failed the
0: test. Yeah. I would I would agree. You don't know the time of your visitation. And that kind of... it. it as I as you read that, somehow it makes you think of what's going on right there, and then I also think towards the second coming. We don't know when that's gonna be. That's good, thank you.
1: I have also heard that one of the other reasons that he was angry is that these <laughs> these uh, money changers changes and so on were in the of the temple, like the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles should have been.
0: Yeah, so disrupting their worship and specifically taking advantage of them also. Yeah, so that was that was there was a lot going on there that he was upset about. And cause that is as a Gentile, that's as close as you could get in. And so they're there. They're taking advantage of them. They're disrupting the way God's house is meant to be used. Any other comments, questions before we step forward? I can't resist you got to uh, There you go. So uh
1: the subject of, of uh righteous
0: anger. Yeah.
1: So can you have a just war? Oh <laughs> can't you have righteous anger
0: can you have a just war? Mm. Well that is maybe, maybe that's too big of that's, that's, that's a that's a really big good. question. So, so so actually we're gonna we're gonna get into a little bit of two kingdoms stuff here in a few minutes, but But uh, the idea of a just war, I mean, there's just war theory, right? And and things that make a just war. Um, And God has certainly given the sword to be used by the kingdom of the left, right? That's the governments that he's put in place. Um, And so the question of whether or not you can have a just war, I'm going to say that it is possible, but highly unlikely. Um, And before anyone starts throwing things at me, it's, it's, it's a very complicated, very complicated topic. When we look at the wars in the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to go to war a lot of times. And sometimes we go, I don't understand why you did that, God. That seemed pretty crazy, but He commanded them. Much of the time where they go to war of their own volition, how does that turn out? Not so great. Um, So I wouldn't go so far as to say there is no just war, but how you go about evaluating that is a very complex thing and probably beyond the scope of what I should talk about this morning as far as just war theory. But that is a great question. Maybe we should do a whole session on that. right and
1: be righteous anger expressed in the church.
0: so i would say i would say that where righteous anger falls is that because of our sinful hearts right jesus wept jesus felt emotions god created us with emotions and so the feeling of anger is not in itself a sin but when we look at what Jesus says, and this is throughout His time with us, and we look at kind of the examples in Scripture that we have of human anger, the line between feeling that emotion of anger and acting in sin is so fine, so dangerously close that, in Jesus' words, He almost, He doesn't explicitly equip, uh, equate anger with sin but it's almost indistinguishable. And so I would argue as a result that for us now, I don't have any righteousness of my own. So for me to truly feel righteous anger is probably beyond my capability. Because I do get angry. I've yet to find in my life where my anger is righteous. Um, And that's being fully transparent. Um, Because I don't have the heart of God. He loves me. He holds me dear. He forgives me. And so in my anger, more often than not, that feeling of anger directly connects me through to that emotion, to that sinning part where I'm grinding my teeth and and thinking negative thoughts about somebody. And as we know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, even if you think those things, you've already done it. And so what I would Where I land on righteous anger is that us actually having legitimate, pure, righteous anger is not possible as a a sinner. Um, I don't know what that looks like in the absence of sin, but in the absence of sin, I would say there's probably not a reason to get angry. And that's a a challenging thing. But if you go to concordiatheology.org, that article that Dr. Gibbs wrote is there, and it's an excellent article unpacking it. Um, because it wrestles also with the fact that we are given those emotions. We do feel anger. So what do I do with that when I feel that anger? Um, And I would argue that in the end, the best thing for us as Christians when we feel that anger is to go to the Lord in prayer and pray, because we can—anger, the the feeling of anger can lead to good things happening— but if i act out of anger that's different and so when i when i see something that, that that generates anger inside of me if i pray about it i found in my life a lot of times then i start to see that whatever that is that other party that other situation differently and then the anger turns to either sorrow or empathy for that person. Because then I start suddenly to see, especially if it's a person, this is an image bearer of God. This is a sinful creature in need of a savior, in need of the grace of God. And then suddenly, from anger, you slowly work towards a different emotion moving forward. And that usually brings about the the things that God desires from our hearts more than when I get angry and I'm like this is terrible and I'm going to dive right into it. Um, One more thought and then I'll get right to you. So as we as we think about righteous anger as we think about all those things we need to just guard very very carefully uh, against that and not let that be the thing that motivates us to action. Or that we don't act out of it. It can motivate us to action, but that we don't act out of it. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: That's and that is a great song. Be angry and do not sin. So you see, it's it's, it's not that anger itself is sin. It's yeah. what flows from that very easily can be sin, and so Jesus doesn't really differentiate.
1: I just was looking at stuff, but the yeah. study Bible says. The, uh, is
0: yeah. So We recognize when something is not the way it should be. Yeah. And we can, we can. But you know, like we said before, the church is a whole, which is why you need one another. Yeah. One another. Yes. And you know, older Christians who are able. we develop those mechanisms right and that's you you bring up a good point we have brothers and sisters in Christ uh, for a reason uh, because oftentimes the anger that comes up in our life is situational and so I can come and say I'm really struggling with this can you pray for me can you pray with me can we talk about this there's other times in our lives where that anger is deeper seated. And it's something that is there, it's this thread. And I'm, thanks be to God that we live in a time where it's not nearly as taboo for someone to go and talk to a counselor to process through that because God has given us these gifted people. He's given them gifts to help us walk through those things and help to learn how to process that. So yeah, anger is a, it's a dangerous thing. So we don't want to toy with that too much. And, and the reason that I really brought that up is because I've heard this, this event used before by Christians to justify acting angrily about things. And it's become almost, uh, and actually Dr. Gibbs points this out in his article, out, we, we veil it and call it outrage outrage in our society today, and culture, and it's actually regarded as a virtue to be outraged about something and get angry about this injustice, whatever it is. Uh, and so, it's kind of a, a dangerous line to tread, to, to look at something like outrage, which is veiled anger, as a virtue. Um, that's not what Christ wants to come from. Hearts that are changed by the Holy Spirit, uh, and so again, just so I'm clear, I'm not saying that feeling the emotion of anger is sin. That's not. We were created with emotions, but what happens once that anger arises in our hearts very easily turn can turn to sin, and so we have to guard against that. Good discussion, you guys. Seeing no hands. So that brings to a conclusion chapter 19. So we step towards chapter 20 here, uh, and, and we're gonna see this opening few verses here, the opening eight verses of this chapter talk about the authority of Jesus. And this makes sense because he's come into town, cleared out the temple, and he set up shop there. I'm teaching. And so one day, As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, a chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up to him and said, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or, who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, "I I I will also ask a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so they want to challenge his authority. And so they ask him specifically what authority does these things by. And we mentioned last week that in... In these times, much like today, where a pastor gets issued a call document, uh, if someone was going to be teaching in in this temple or in a synagogue specifically, that the rabbi there would issue them actually like a letter essentially saying, you have authority to teach here. And so, this isn't a question that would have been completely beyond the, the pale. This is something that would have been kind of a normal question, but we know, based on the rest of their interactions, that they're not just asking this to say, like, oh, hey, cool, it's a new teacher in town. Do you, do you have your credentials here so that we can listen to you? They're, they're definitely driving at something different here. And so they are not, in a sense, asking this question in good faith. They're, trying to to play politics with jesus here a little bit thinking they can corner him and so they don't want to respond this baptism of john the baptist people had been going out to the wilderness and they had been baptized by john the baptist and this is something that religious leaders didn't like very much but it had happened and the people really held on to that and so jesus decides to, he's not going to play their game. He, they ask him about John's baptism, or he asks him about John's baptism, and they know that no matter how they respond, they lose. Either the people are going to be really angry at them, or the people are going to be really angry at them. No matter what happens here, they lose. If they say it's from man, the people are not going to like it. If it's say it's from God, then everyone's going to look at him and go, well, why in the world, if it's from God, did you not believe that John was sent from God? You're supposed to be the religious leaders. You're supposed to be the ones that are looking for these signs and pointing us to him. And so very quickly and very skillfully, Jesus kind of turns them on their heads. And they can't find a response that's going to actually be acceptable in this Space and so Jesus says, You want to play politics with me, if you want to play you know games with me here? What about this? And they say, We can't. We can't. And so they step back. They don't want that hot potato at all. Um any comments on that? Yeah. Uh I
1: always kind of thought Jesus was trying to ask the question out of the blue, just to confuse but Really he was asking them, who do you say gave John the
0: Baptist the authority? To preach? Well there there is that, right? If if John is from God, if if his if his baptism is real, then God has given him that authority. And so you're right, they are they don't want to touch that with a ten-foot pole. they they're not even thinking about John right now until he poses this question because they're they're hyper-focused on Jesus and getting rid of him. And so when he brings this authority question up, or when they bring this authority question up and he turns it around, they realize that they don't have a good answer for any of it. Any other comments? No? All right. Here we go. So... The Parable of the Wicked Tenants. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Well, I I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him so here we have in this parable a picture we have this picture painted of the old testament we see what's happened all throughout god's story of everything leading up until this point point. and we see that the tenants in this parable are the religious leaders of the day now through old testament times and right here in Jesus' time. And these servants are prophets. Ones that are sent. And the man that planted the vineyard, that's, that's God, right? And so, repeatedly, throughout all of history, God keeps sending messengers. He keeps sending prophets to prophesy and to teach. And time and time again, the people continually reject them. They reject them day in, day out, all through history until the man sends his own son. And then they kill him too. And so this is a really skillful, artful picture of human history from the fall all the way to Jesus. And so the the response as they hear this, they say, surely not. And it's it's unclear which part of this they're actually responding to. They might just be taking it at face value and saying, surely not they won't kill the son of this vineyard owner. They could be saying, is he speaking about us here? (laughs) Surely not, this is not us. We don't know exactly what, but the fact is they did not like what had been said. And so they respond, surely not. Now my feeling is they probably had an idea this was about them because every time they interact with Jesus, he very skillfully uh, combats them with words that sting and hurt because of their hard hearts. And so, They say, surely not. And he looks at them and he says these words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so this is out of Psalm 118. And this is a widely recognized messianic psalm. So he's been teaching in the temple and he hasn't really been directly answering their questions. And so when he says this, I mean, this right here, um, would have caused quite, quite the upheaval in the hearts of the religious leaders, of the scribes of the day, because right here as he says that, it's, it's clear to them that Jesus is saying I'm the Messiah, without actually saying I am the Messiah, because they knew when they heard this psalm, that's a messianic psalm. We recognize that as being a psalm that's talking about the Redeemer that is to come. and He closes out with everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush them and so this They are not happy. And you see that in the very next verse verse 19, which which starts a new section But the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him from that very hour now This next section right here uh, is a little bit different. So I want to pause at the end of verse 19 before we dive into that. Isn't it fascinating that essentially Jesus comes in and says, what's going to happen in this parable? They're going to kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. And they get really upset about it. And their response here is we really don't like what he said, we've got to get him. So essentially, they are doing exactly what he just said that they don't like. I, it, it, it's kind of mind-boggling that he tells this parable that gets them all up in arms, and so they just decide, well, we're going to step forward and do the thing that he just said that we're going to do. I just It's... It's one of those, one of those uh, pieces of scripture that just the violence of the cross achieved our salvation. And so the cross is at the same time terrible and beautiful to us. And this is one of those places where I think about that and I smile for the salvation one for me. And I also find just a little humor in the religious leaders not getting it so much that in their anger they're just complying. God works in mysterious ways. And sometimes he makes me chuckle. Yes? Yeah. The other thing I to ask That's a great question. I don't know whether I would say there's a direct connection, but that's a really good observation. So there's, he's crucified outside of Jerusalem, and so he's thrown out of the vineyard. Um, And so I guess you could look at it that way, but I don't want to authoritatively say that's the connection there. Um, Because I think more than the location in in this parable, He's driving at the action of the tenants against the son of the master. Uh, And that's one of the things to keep in mind as we read parables is many times uh, there's a lot of ancillary things going on in a parable. And Jesus is driving at a nugget in the middle. And so we want to make sure sometimes those things are interesting to talk about but we don't want to get too, too hung up on some of those because what he's getting at here is specific to kind of the story of god's redemption of his people in christ jesus but good good observation anybody else yeah oh, here you go
1: rest him immediately oh yeah
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, so they are, they are um, certainly getting desperate. They've been wanting this to end for a while, and so the energy is increasing. Yeah, they are not happy. And it's also interesting in that they, the verse that says, they perceived that he had told that parable against them, but they feared the people. So, yeah, they want it done, but they're terrified because all these angry mobs of people would be descending on them if they did that there. Uh, and so they watched him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said, and that's where we find our next section. And, and this is one that I, I particularly uh, love the conversation. So let's dive in. Uh, catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And that's because they don't have the authority to put him to death in Rome. They can send him to the governor and the governor can execute him, uh, but they can't in Rome execute him. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, how do you think that sounds coming out of their mouths to Jesus as they're plotting against him and they want to arrest him right now and haul him off? And, and it's just like, I mean, just dripping with sarcasm, just awful. Um, wow. I mean, and then verse 22 is it lawful to, for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent." So this, uh, this passage of scripture uh, is something that we probably have read many times. It's something that we would find in conversations likely with our founding documents even of America here. And so this really is the two kingdoms thing. And we're not talking just war right now, but we're, we're talking about the two kingdoms and how we as Christians live in both kingdoms. Uh, because... The kingdom of the right is God's kingdom. The kingdom of the left is the kingdom of this world, also God's kingdom, right? His umbrella extends over all things. Uh, and as, as Christians, we are subject to God. I owe my, my number one spot in my heart to Him at all times. At the same time, God said, you're going to live in this time, in this place, and there are governments, there are authorities there that are making laws to carry out justice in the land, and you're also subject to them. And that's what they're getting at here, because in this time, you guys have heard of zealots, right? The ones that are really zealous. They don't like Rome. And so, they don't want to pay taxes to Rome. They want to rise up against, and they have risen up against Rome. And so, as they ask this question, they want Jesus to say one or the other. Because one way or the other, he's in a bad spot. Pay taxes to Caesar, the people are going to be upset with you. Don't pay taxes, cool, we can hand you over to the governor because you're going to be inciting an uprising or a rebellion over here. And so, he does something brilliant. So, if you ever looked at those Roman coins, there's always the bust of whoever is the Caesar. And so, he uses this word, image. And this is a great way to think about this. Caesar's image is on that. And if we were to look at our currency today, we have a variety of presidents on our currency, um, with the exception of Alexander Hamilton. Um, we have a bunch of presidents on our currency, right? Oh, Franklin, too. I don't ever see Ben Franklin's, so... <laughs> I'm much more accustomed to Washington and Lincoln. Um, so, so, we have, these, we have this, this currency, and we render that to the governing authorities. Right? They say you pay taxes, and we all, joyfully or not, pay our taxes, to be a part of this system. God has placed us here. It's the same reason that we exercise the privilege that we have in this nation to vote, to make our voice heard. Uh, It's the same reason that we comply with the laws that they set forth. We don't just kind of go out and do whatever we want. I mean, some people might, uh, but then the kingdom of the left comes down with the, the, the law on them. But it's the image. And so I want you to think about that in relation to what we render to Caesar and what we render to God, because you and I bear what image? We are image bearers of God, and so we render our hearts to Him. Now part of that is subject to the governing authorities, but that's where we look at it and we say, I belong to God. I serve Him first. And that means I loyally serve my my city, my county, my state, my nation. Except for where they ask me to do something that's in direct conflict with God's law. And that becomes a really, really muddy water. Uh, And it also creates a unique problem for us as Christians because if my state asks me to do something that conflicts with God's law and says, you must do this, and I say, I can't do that. That violates my faith. That is pleasing in God's eyes but I am still subject to those governing authorities and so that means that when they come to me and they say all right we're going to put the bracelets on you and take you downtown because you're violating our law I also submit to that and we don't like that that is a very uncomfortable position to be in to save that I'm following God's law, and yep, I'm going to be going to the Correctional Institute because I violated what the state said. But there, there is a reality there for us as Christians, um, living in both places. And we have, we have to learn to reconcile that, uh, because there are times where there's things that the government espouses that we don't find God-pleasing. now. Praise be to God, most of the time here, I haven't come across a time in my life where something they've espoused or put forth, they've required me to do. They've changed laws that are not God-pleasing, but they haven't enforced that on me to say, okay, you must do this. They may have allowed something, and so that's where, in that kingdom, I can call my politicians, I can vote, I can pray, I can have conversations, Uh, but it's a a terribly uncomfortable place for us to be and that's okay. Uh, Jesus actually talks about as he teaches, especially in the Gospel of Luke, this suffering before glory. And the life of a Christian, there is a suffering in that life. We're going to meet resistance. and we witness in that resistance. And sometimes that means maybe quietly, kindly, maybe even if we can muster it up, a smile on our face, enduring some of that. Are there any thoughts on that right now? Because I know I, I opened up a big can here, but it's a can that I really think is worth talking about. Oh, there we go. I was going to say, certainly there's got to be a hand up.
1: There's a lot of thinking on that. Yeah. I think that the kingdom, the two kingdom um, understanding is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that I don't feel alone. I, I, I'm a member of the body of Christ. Therefore, a citizen of the kingdom of the right. Mm-hmm.
0: But I'm responsible for what I do in the kingdom of the right. Yes. So I don't know people just live and survive who have gone into jail. Yeah asking the Lutheran laymen in Germany that suffered because of what mm-hmm. happened Yeah. And there have been many Christians that have done it but the, the promise is up to each person. But we don't teach as a, as a Lutheran church by politics. Yeah. And then people
1: understand that you proclaim the gospel in a law mm-hmm. and you understand the word of God. Yeah. What you choose to do mm-hmm. is between you and God. Yeah. And so it, it's hard because a lot of they want
0: us as a church to come out. Like, yeah. yeah this there's a there's a, a book um, by Niebuhr called Christ and culture that really I think is excellent for framing this conversation because as you read through he he has five different Christian groups um, and not not specific he's not calling names but but ways that Christians operate in relation to the culture around us um, and yet, you can see how, as you read through the book, the, the way that different Christians decide to interact with culture, um, because it's going to be uncomfortable, and we have to do it, but how do we, how do, we do it? And some of them uh, look at it as, as Christ over culture, uh, whereas this stuff's all going on, but it belongs to God, and he's there. And I... My brain is is checking out for just a minute on how to explain that. So suffice it to say, our understanding of Christ and culture is Christ and culture in paradox or in tension, is that they both exist alongside one another, that I have to operate in both, but ultimately my allegiance is to God. And my job is to witness in that. It's not the Christ transforming culture, which is something we commonly see, which is the it's my job to win culture back for Jesus. That's a very common thing. That's not our job. Culture is broken, and it is going to continue to be more and more broken until Jesus comes back. Our job in the midst of that is to live in the tension of that, witness, shine the light of Christ, but understand that no matter how much we do, I can't fix any culture, whether it's American culture, British culture, Chinese, Russian, Vietnamese, whatever culture it is, I can't fix any of them and make them a purely Christian culture that's God-pleasing because cultures are, culture is made up of people, and people are sinful. And so we have to, to guard against that. And that paradox also means that we don't acquiesce to the things that are not God-pleasing. Um, because there are some groups that come alongside culture and, and kind of buddy up and say, well, you know, we're just going gonna to get along with what culture does. And then we end up not actually proclaiming the gospel because we're just proclaiming what the culture has to say about life and so it's it's christ and in culture intention or in paradox and it's a can be uncomfortable at times but what you but what you were pointing at is whose we are and i think that that's such a beautiful thing um uh, one of one of the gentlemen in the congregation shared a poem recently. Uh, it's, you might have heard it, and I don't have a copy here and in this moment, I'm wishing. I had, it is uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and so he was in prison in, in Nazi Germany, uh, and if you're not familiar with, with him, he was a German pastor. He actually came over to America. He was in New York, and when everything got really bad, he could have stayed in America and taught here, but he felt like it was important for him to be with the people there, and so he went back to Germany, and he was a part of the Confessing Church there during the Nazi regime. Uh, They didn't like that, and so they put him in prison, they tortured him, and ultimately executed him, but there's this poem that he wrote, and it talked about all of these things uh, that he was, but as the poem gets to its conclusion, he's a child of God. And this is, I mean, this is just before his execution, and he's in a Nazi you know, prison, which is not a fun place to be, but there's all of these different things. This is a, this is a well-written, well-known theologian, and so there's all of these pieces of his life, but all that gets, can get stripped away except for the fact that he's a child of God. And so when we remember that in the midst of all these struggles with culture, That's sometimes where we can step back and and we can get upset. We can get angry about something and pray and say, I can't fix this. Only you can fix this, God. How can I be your instrument to deliver the gospel and your peace into this situation? Um, It's a great poem. You should look it up. And we're doing good on time, too. There you go, Ruth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, and not only the but the right. They do not want to, but yeah, yeah, say, no, yeah, want Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I can think of, uh, you know, bakers out west. I think there's a baker in Colorado that's still, uh, nearly a decade later, getting drugged through the mud. Uh, they were not found criminally liable of anything, but they've been in civil court since then. Uh, and so, you're right. Culture keeps moving in a direction. and So it, it actually makes the, the, the practice of our faith a much more challenging thing. Uh, Because the further and further culture goes, the word of the Lord doesn't go. It doesn't change. It's here. And so for us as Christians, increasingly we face these these questions of, so what does it mean to be a Christian engaging in culture? Where can I engage? Where do I not engage? And what does it mean when that conflicts? Because might not have been an issue 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, nearly as great, but today, suddenly, as a business person, you have to answer some very real questions. Uh, I can just even just think in the realm of today's hot button topics in human resources. I, I, that's a challenging place to be in the world today, in America, as you're trying to navigate the waters of what it means to be a faithful Christian and what it means to be a faithful citizen. Terrifying in my mind. Um, but it is, it's where God has called us to follow. I think one very helpful thing is to notice how
1: Jesus handles um,
0: dialogue
1: by answering questions. Yeah. For instance, this last week I felt, kind of, I felt heart sick. I saw that there was a huge celebration for pride. And I thought, okay, it was gone down here. My question my would be, okay, um, what, what, are you, what are you proud of? Yeah. Are you proud of being a preacher of God? Because I can, I can go along with you there. Are you proud of that? Yeah. You're gay or you're homosexual, I cannot agree
0: yeah. it's not something
1: I can Yeah. So, I mean, there are times we just have hands to die and questions. Yeah. I think like a lot of people know
0: So, so that, yeah, it, I, I love the idea of asking questions, and this is something uh, that I think we need to recognize as Christians. Uh, we are called to always be prepared to give a defense for our faith. But that doesn't mean that every single person that I walk by on schnooks is the person that I'm supposed to say, have you met my friend Jesus to? And what I mean by that is, at the beginning, before even the fall into sin, what was the one thing that God said wasn't good? I'm going way back to the beginning here. It's not good for the man to be alone. God created us for community. Before the fall into sin, He came and walked in the garden. He wants us to talk to Him. He wants us to come to Him in prayer. He's given us our brothers and sisters in Christ to be in relationship, albeit broken relationships. And as we witness to people, He puts us in varying levels of relationship. Um, you can describe it like swimming, snorkeling, scuba diving. All right? When I interact with you and I'm like, hey, how's the weather? You know, it's a little rainy. Hope it doesn't affect the rummage sale drop-off today. We're swimming. I mean, I can have that conversation with just about anybody. As I develop that relationship further and I start, you know, knowing a little more about someone and I ask a little deeper questions, like, hey, you know, I heard so-and-so is in the hospital. How are they doing? I'm snorkeling. And then when I really get to know someone, and notice that your circle gets smaller and smaller. When I'm scuba diving, I really am like the deep hurts. Those are the the people in your life where, like when everything is going sideways, that's your 2 a.m. friend that you call and say, this is terrible, help me unpack this. And the reason I bring that up is that we are not called to scuba dive with every single person we walk by we are called to be fixing our eyes on him so that when that person comes by that we're supposed to scuba dive with that we recognize that and it's so important because sometimes we can get discouraged and say how in the world am i supposed to share the gospel and and with all these people well god didn't call you to eat the whole elephant you've got one bite of it or two bites of it, right? And so please recognize that in your lives. This is something that for me in my career as a firefighter became very clear uh, because I was in the same fire station for a third of my life with these guys for like two decades, some of them for the majority of that time. And you know, the first year or two, maybe the conversations were much more superficial, but after we'd been working together for years and a decade, and we really knew one another well, the depth of conversation about faith changed. It got deeper and deeper and the questions got harder and more uncomfortable, but we knew that we had each other's backs no matter what, And so, we were willing to sit there around that fire station table in the kitchen, because that's where all, that's the water cooler, right? And have those conversations and scuba dive together. Uh, And so, it's the same in our lives. We find those people in our lives that we're supposed to scuba dive with so that we can have those conversations. Because if you try to scuba dive without without being trained, it's not going to go well for you. If I try to scuba dive with someone who my relationship is not a scuba diving relationship, it's probably going to end in a train wreck. Because they need to know that I love and care about them as a person before I enter into that. Now, that doesn't mean that I condone anything that's being done if it's outside the, the will of God. But that also means that right wrong or otherwise, no matter what that person's sin is, they are a loved child of God even if they're rebelling and turning their back on him. He still loves them. And so I have to develop, like, if he has called me to witness to that person, no matter how hard it is, I have to be patient if I'm feeling called to do that and I'm at a swimming level. I can't just start and go like, oh man, God's put this person on my heart. Let me step in here and just blow it up all at the very beginning because... If that person doesn't think or know that you care about them as a person before you start diving into those hard questions, it's gonna be very hard to ever get to those hard questions. And so, as I say that, that's not an excuse to inaction. We don't wanna look at that and go like, well, cool, pastor said I don't have to like, witness to everybody. I sit on my laurels. It's a call to discernment, to meditating on the word of God, To talking to him and praying that he reveals to me who it is that I'm supposed to have those conversations with. We're getting close on time here. Is there any thoughts on that? Yes. Yes. Life experience is good. More
1: people are starting to
0: Yeah. But the questions are great. And I just think, resorting back to God's work,
1: that's where, you know, just say the Word of God. And yeah. And just, i had to say to people, well, the Word of God says what the Word of God, says. I, I deny it. You deny it. Yeah. Like, oh, I might not want it to say, what it says, and you might not let it say yeah. it. So that's yeah. all
0: Yeah. Yes. I just can't say it, Yeah. Closing thought. You've heard this quote from me at least once in a sermon, but I'm going to say it again because it's so comforting for us and our Christian witness. Dr. Kolb, who helped translate the Book of Concord for us, the, the blue version, uh, he's a seminary prof, and he's been prof there for I think over 40 years so awesome awesome guy to teach uh, to teach about the faith we are called to confess he is there to convince and so in our christian witness i've said that i said in a sermon i want to say that again because all i can do is point people to christ because he has called me to faith i can't change hearts but I'm called to faithfully point people to him. But that takes the burden off my shoulders of saying, if I witness and someone rejects, it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It just means that the Holy Spirit is working in the ways the Holy Spirit chooses to work in that situation. Okay? Again, not a call to inaction, but just a call to discernment. And with that, I hope you guys have a great week. Uh, we are here for rummage sales, so if you have things at home that you want to drop off, come on down. We'll be here, till like, uh, we'll be here this afternoon, tomorrow. And if you want to shop, come shop. We've got lots of good stuff for you. Thank you so much for being here, guys. Blessings on your week. We will see you next time.